Thank you, Patrick and Alicia and team that went to Morocco. We love the country of Morocco and want to keep praying for the people there in the next uh, several weeks. And if you would turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3. I want to ask you this morning, if there is something in your life that you desire so much, you would be willing to do anything to get it or to keep it. And if anyone tried to take it from you, you would make them pay a steep price. Maybe it's something that's rightfully yours, like an inheritance that belongs to you, but there's been a dispute over it. Or maybe it's something for your kids, and you are determined that no one and nothing is going to get in the way of their advancement. Is there anything that your heart desires so much you'd be willing to do anything, even something wicked, to get it or to keep it? We've been looking at the story of David and we've been seeing that David has been waiting a long time to be king over Israel. He desires to be king. He knows that God has anointed him and appointed him to be king. And now that Saul is dead, there should be a peaceful transition of power to David. But instead of gaining the whole kingdom, David gets just one small part. And he has to endure a long and bloody civil war before this whole kingdom finally becomes his. What will David do with those who are standing in the way to the fulfillment of his desires. That's what we're going to see in this story this morning. Now, if you've been reading through the narrative of 2 Samuel following the, the Bible reading plan that Pastor Dan introduced next last week, you might be having a hard time keeping all the characters straight. I know that I certainly have. So I want to put a slide on the screen that lists the casts of characters, the who's who from these chapters. So we have David, He's God's anointed king, and right now in these chapters, he's reigning just over the little tribe of Judah from a city called Hebron. Then there's Abner. Abner is the commander of Saul's army. He knows that God has anointed David to be Saul's successor, but Abner sees himself as the power broker who can give the land to whomever he chooses. And then there's Ishbosheth. My goal in this sermon is not to have to say that too many times in a row. Ishbosheth. It's a nickname that means son of shame, man of shame. He is the son of Saul. And Abner decides he's going to install Ishbosheth as the puppet king over most of the tribes of Israel. And he reigns for two years. Then we have these three brothers, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. They are called the sons of Zariah. And that's kind of interesting because a lot of times in the Bible, uh, it will say sons of the father's name. But here, Zariah is the mother's name. And Zariah is David's sister. So these three guys, not only are they brothers to one another, they are nephews to King David. And of those three, Joab is the commander of David's army. And in chapter 2, Asahel, Joab's brother tries to chase down Abner, the commander of Saul's army, 
And Abner's the older man. He can't run as fast as Asahel can. He sees Asahel coming after him. And he's getting closer and closer. And Abner keeps calling back, saying, stop chasing me. Go. You're going to regret this. Don't do this. But Asahel keeps chasing him. And he gets closer and closer. Finally, after warning him a couple times, Abner stops running, sticks out the butt of his spear, and Asahel runs right into it. And the spear goes in his belly and out his back, and he stops dead in his tracks. That's just one of the the kind of stories of intrigue that we have in these chapters. And there's lots of twists and turns like that. But I think we'll get the main point better if we stay focused on the forest and don't get lost in the woods. So the, the, the main verse of these two chapters is in chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to put it up on the screen, and we're going to hear this latter phrase in this verse over and over again. So what I want us to do is just read this verse out loud together. This is going to be what anchors us through this sermon this morning. So let's say this verse together in unison. During the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David was growing stronger and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Let me just take three short observations from this verse. Even though Saul is dead, David is still facing opposition and strife from the house of Saul. David is in the middle of a great and long war. That's important for us to remember. Secondly, David is growing stronger and stronger through the course of this war. And thirdly, Saul's lineage is growing weaker and weaker. And what I want to do in this sermon is examine how it is that David is growing stronger and stronger even in the face of all this adversity. And my prayer is that we will be transformed by this narrative as we leave here worshiping and rejoicing in the fact that we have a king named Jesus whose kingdom is growing stronger and stronger in this world even when all appearances are telling us otherwise. The kingdom of Jesus is growing stronger and stronger. And because of the invincible victory of our King Jesus, When things aren't going our way, we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We don't need to lash out at those who do us wrong. We don't need to do evil so that good may come. We can patiently wait for our king to overcome, and we can follow his way of peace instead of acting as if everything depends on us. So how is it, this is our key question, how is it that David grows stronger and stronger in the face of all this adversity? And we're going to see three negative answers to that question this morning before we get to the reason. First, it wasn't because of any power play on David's part. Second, it wasn't because he was not without his own faults and follies. And third, it was not because of violence or vengeance on David's part. So David grew stronger and stronger, not because of any power play on his part. That's the first point this morning. So let's look back at chapter 2. 
And you'll remember, as Pastor Brandon preached last week, how David lamented the death of King Saul. Even though Saul was his enemy, even though Saul made his life miserable, when Saul died, David chose not to vilify Saul, but instead to find virtues he could commend. And David showed incredible honor and humility in the way he led the nation in mourning over the death of Saul. But now, chapter 2, verse 1 brings us to a season that is sometime later. The king and his son have been buried. The flag is no longer flying at half-mast. There's a vacuum of leadership in the nation. And David knows that his time has come, the time that God had been promising him and the time for which the prophet Samuel had anointed him. Nevertheless, David doesn't go storming into Jerusalem to take charge. He doesn't follow the way of Napoleon, who famously took the crown from the Pope and placed the crown on his own head. Instead, of, instead David, in humility, inquires of the Lord in verse 1, Should I go to one of the towns of Judah? And the Lord answered him, Go. Then David asked, Where should I go? To Hebron, the Lord replied. Now, when we see the names of places in the Bible, it's helpful to ask, where have we been introduced to this place in the past? And Hebron was the place back in the book of Genesis where the Lord appeared to Abram and told him that he was going to, his wife Sarah was going to have a son. So God made a covenant promise to Abraham in Hebron. Hebron. Hebron ends up to be the place east of that city where Abraham buried his wife, Sarah. And then later on, Abraham himself and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah would all be buried there. Hebron is a place where the covenant promises begin. And by telling David to go to Hebron, the Lord is connecting David to those promises that he made with Abraham a long time ago. And, and he's also pointing us forward to a greater son of David. The very first words we read in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So this is a major new beginning for David, going to Hebron. But instead of grabbing the power for himself, David comes with his wives and the men who are with him, and he submits himself to the men of Judah who readily recognize him as their king. Look at verse 4. It says, then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And immediately they tell David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David has a choice to make here. These are the men who valiantly went into Philistine territory, and they retrieved the bodies of Saul and Jonathan, who had been decapitated and nailed to the wall. And, and the question these men are asking is, what are you going to do with these guys who had been so courageously attached to Saul? Are you going to keep a suspicious eye on them? Are you going to launch a preemptive strike against them? Are you going to keep them at arm's length? What are you going to do, David? And instead of all these understandable human reactions, David does something unnatural. Look at how David responds to these loyal servants of King Saul in verse 5. It says, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, listen to this, the Lord bless you because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, when you buried him. 
Now may the Lord show kindness and faithfulness to you. And I will also show the same goodness to you because you have done this deed. Therefore be strong and valiant. For though Saul your Lord is dead, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David is taking a policy here of no retribution against former enemies. And it's not that he doesn't care about justice, but he's clearly a man who believes that mercy triumphs over judgment. So he shows kindness. He bestows blessing on those who had every potential of being a burr in his saddle. I love how John Woodhouse describes it. He says, David's message to those who had every reason to regard him as their enemy and to consider themselves his enemies was about God's grace. If the people of Jabesh Gilead talked together about this message, they might have said, though we were his enemies, David spoke to us of God's love. And when you see the heart of David and recognize his gracious character and remember everything he's went through to get to this point, aren't you rooting him for him big time? Aren't you hoping David is going to experience a little bit of a political honeymoon here, a time of rest and peace and prosperity when everyone unites around him and hasn't he earned that by now? Doesn't he deserve a fresh start? Well, he's not going to get it, not for a while. Instead, he gets more rivalry, a new wave of opposition. Look at verse 8. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took Saul's son Ishbosheth and moved him to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asher, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, over all Israel. Saul's son Ishbosheth was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. He reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So Abner takes this former son, this son of the former king, Saul, and he moves to a place called Mahanaim. Here's another Bible place. Mahanaim in the book of Genesis is the place where Jacob met with angels on his way to his reunion with his brother Esau, from whom he had been estranged. And at that place, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two camps. That's what Mahanaim means. It means two camps. And that's exactly what Abner is doing. He's dividing the kingdom that rightfully belongs to David. He's creating a division at precisely the point where there should have been a united kingdom under David. And as Abner himself is going to reveal in chapter 3, he knows full well what God has promised to David. He just sees a political opportunity right now to prolong the dynasty of Saul a little longer, and he doesn't want to let David enjoy the kingdom that God has promised him. So he blocks David from reigning over a united kingdom, and he puts this puppet king, Ishbosheth, up in his place, and really the power broker behind it all is Abner. It's not going to last long, but it's going to bring a whole lot of bloodshed and heartache to David and his kingdom. I think we can pause and just make an application here. 
We as God's people in 2023, we want to enjoy increased influence for Christ and his kingdom. We pray that our church will extend God's mercy to the Fox Valley. We pray that God will use us to bring more and more people to Christ. But we need to remember that with increased influence often comes increased opposition as well. There will be rivalry. And sometimes it comes from even within the kingdom itself. That's what the Apostle Paul was facing when he was in prison in Rome. There were people who took advantage of the fact that Paul was stuck in prison to try to gain a following in competition with Paul. And Paul knew about it. And he, he wrote from prison to the people in Philippi, and, and he said, some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. And I'm sure that didn't feel very good for Paul. But, but how did he respond? He said, as long as Christ is being preached, I will rejoice. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to use my power, my apostolic authority to try to silence the opposition. No, as long as Christ is being preached, I will rejoice and I will trust in God to deal with the rivalry, to deal with the opposition in his own time and in his own way. I will patiently wait on the Lord to advance his kingdom. Isn't that the attitude we want to have? Sadly, it's not, not the way we always react. I, I was just listening to a podcast this week, and two leaders of a Christian nonprofit organization were telling about how when they started this organization, they chose a Bible verse from Exodus to be their theme verse. And a couple weeks later, they got a phone call from another Christian nonprofit organization saying, sorry, you can't use that verse from Exodus. We already picked that verse, and we have a trademark on it. <laughs> Since when are Bible verses subject to trademark violations? I mean, who among us owns the Bible? <laughs> But when we recognize that the kingdom belongs to the Lord, and we don't own it, we don't control it, then we can hold our position and our influence open-handedly. And we can trust the Lord to lift us up or to bring us down. And we can trust the Lord to make his kingdom grow stronger and stronger, even though people are working against it. That's what was happening in David's life. That's our first point this morning. But I think it's also important for us to recognize the whole picture about David. Because the narrator of Samuel doesn't hide his blemishes from us. So that brings us to the second point this morning. David grew stronger and stronger, not because he was without his own faults and follies. Okay, God didn't just raise up David because David was a perfect man. No. I'm hoping this little point is actually going to strengthen some of our hearts this morning that God still wants to use us and work through us even though we're not perfect either. Because sometimes we let our own failings convince us that God has no more use for us, that we've been put on the shelf, that we've been disqualified from any kind of usefulness but we see in this narrative that God is making David stronger and stronger, not because of David's perfection. No, it's pretty clear even from verse 2 of chapter 2 that David's got some issues. You know how we see that is in those words, his two wives. What? 
his two wives? <laughs> What's that all about? And in chapter 3, right after we read that verse that we read together in verse 1 about David growing stronger and stronger, we see that one of the ways his strength was increasing was that he was accumulating quite a few wives for himself, and through them, many sons were being born. And the narrator gives us their names in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3. He doesn't comment on any kind of moral judgment here about David's polygamy. It's just stated as a matter of fact. Nonetheless, we shouldn't think that everything the Bible reports as fact is endorsed or promoted by the God of the Bible. We know what God's will and plan for marriage is way back in the early chapters of Genesis. And what is it? One man, one woman, united as one flesh for life. That's God's plan and will for marriage. And, and we know that God's will for his kings, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 says, the king must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart will not grow, go astray. So even though it was common in ancient Near Eastern cultures for royalty to expand their power by making alliances through more and more marriages, God wants something different for his king. And it's going to become abundantly clear as the story of 2 Samuel unfolds that all these wives for David aren't, aren't, aren't helping him. It's actually going to become a source of treachery and heartache in his kingdom. So there's only one king in the kingdom of God who is worthy of worship. Only one. And how many brides does that king have? How many brides does Jesus have? He has one bride. And how did Jesus obtain that bride? From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life, he died. He was sacrificial, laying down his life for her. He was faithful. He is faithful to the end. So everyone else in this kingdom is flawed and fallen. Even the best of men are men at best, men like King David. And so we should show respect. We should show honor to leaders in God's kingdom. But all the while, we need to remember, I think these words are so wise by John Woodhouse, the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus that we sang about this morning, the goodness of Jesus surpasses the goodness of anyone who does anything in his name. Isn't that true? Don't we just worship Jesus for his goodness that far surpasses the goodness of anyone who does anything in his name. So David's kingdom's growing stronger and stronger, but it's not because he doesn't have faults. It's because of God's grace to him in spite of his faults. And the same thing can be true for you and me. We can fail miserably, but Paul says we can forget the things that are behind and we can press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We can keep growing and keep bearing fruit and keep increasing in our usefulness for our king, even though we fail in so many ways. Because our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And we need to rest in that. Finally, third 
point this morning. We need to see that David is growing stronger and stronger amid all this warfare, amid all this adversity, and it's not through violence or vengeance. This is really important for us to see. I think it's one of the main things the writer wants us to see, that David is a legitimate king whom God exalted, whom God raised up, and he didn't get there through violence or vengeance. David is a king who desires peace, not bloodshed. But he has people around him who love to fight. He's weary of war, but he's surrounded by warriors. Much like what we read in Psalm 120, where the psalmist says, I have dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You ever feel like that in this world, or maybe even in your own family? I am for peace, but I'm surrounded by people who love to fight. Well, sometimes warriors can defect to the other side when they sense they're on the losing end of the battle. And that's what is going to happen with Abner in chapter 3. This guy, Abner, he's been such a pain in the neck for David. But in chapter 3, Abner gets fed up with Ishbosheth, his puppet king, because Ishbosheth is fed up with him. And he makes an accusation against Abner, and Abner decides, Enough with you. I'm going to switch loyalties. I'm going over to David. And this would be the perfect opportunity, as Abner's getting closer to David, for David to say, Off with your head. Get rid of that guy. But David is a man of peace. It doesn't matter to David that Abner clearly has mixed motives, that Abner thinks he's the power broker, he's going to make David. No, David isn't inclined to take revenge for all the ways Abner has tried to sabotage him. Instead, under one condition, that Abner return David's wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, to David, David lets Abner go out and start campaigning among all the people of Israel in support of a united kingdom under David. And look what happens. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs here. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. In the past, you wanted David to be king over you. Now, just pause there for a minute. Abner, okay. Did I hear you right there? You actually knew that the people wanted David to be king? What were you doing with Ishbosheth then? Why did you get in the way of it? Well, here he is now. He's ready to go with David. And so he says, Now take action because the Lord has spoken concerning David. Here's another indication of Abner's heart. He knew all along what the Lord had promised David, but he stood in the way of it. The Lord has spoken concerning David. Through my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and the power of all Israel's enemies. Abner also informed the Benjaminites, that was Saul's tribe, and went to Hebron to inform David about all that was agreed on by Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. When Abner and 20 men came to David at Hebron, what do you think David's going to do for these guys? <laughs> Throw him in jail? No. David held a banquet 
for him and his men. A state dinner. Imagine David in his tuxedo. The red carpets rolled up, rolled out. Uh, there's bands playing. And Abner's the great state hero coming into the banquet with King David. After the banquet, Abner said to David, Let me now go, and I will gather all Israel to my lord, the king. They will make a covenant with you, and you will reign over all you desire. So David dismissed Abner, and he went in peace. And that phrase, he went in peace, will be repeated three times, stressing the fact that David has made peace where there was once division. He's turned a man who was once his rival into an ally. He's made an enemy his friend. It's a picture of the magnanimous grace and goodness of the king. But David's graciousness isn't going to be so well received by those who are closest to David. Just as Abner is leaving the king's presence, guess who shows up? Joab, David's nephew, commander of David's armies, the man who's still enraged by how his brother Asahel was killed back in chapter 2 when he was trying to chase down Abner. How do you think Joab's going to respond to David's peace treaty with this man who killed his brother? Well, Joab is outraged. He speaks to King David with scorn, with condescension, as if King David is clueless as to the true nature of Abner's motives. Joab's heart is thirsty for revenge. There's no way he's going to let Abner go away without being the hero who brought, he's, he's not going to let Abner get away with being the hero who brought the kingdom together under David. So look at Joab's reaction in verse 26 of chapter 3. Then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the wall of Sirah, but David was unaware of it. So somehow they've, they've gotten Abner under their control, under their custody, and they bring Abner back to Hebron. Something important for you to understand here is that Hebron is one of the ancient cities of refuge in the Old Testament. This is a place where a man who has shed blood is supposed to be able to flee and be kept safe. So here Abner is in Hebron, and what does Joab do? He pulls him aside to the middle of the city gate as if to speak to him privately, and there Joab stabbed him in the stomach. So Abner died in revenge for the death of Asahel, Joab's brother. King David, when he hears about this, is horrified by this evil act. Joab killed a man in cold blood in the gate of Hebron, this ancient city of refuge where he should have been protected. And while David's nephew might have thought that what he was doing protected the king, in reality, he's putting the kingdom in jeopardy by his act of violence because all the people whom Abner just turned over to David, now they could suspect that David's guilty of this man's blood. So David makes it very clear that this act of vengeance has no part in his kingdom. Look at verse 28. David heard about it later and said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. 
And then he declares a curse over, over Abner and, and speaks of what he hopes will happen to Abner, or I'm sorry, to Joab, to Joab for what he had done to Abner. And then David orders Joab and all the people who are with him in verse 31, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. And when they buried Abner in Hebron, the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. This is the second time now in 2 Samuel that King David is weeping and lamenting publicly over the death of one of his former enemies. He did it for Saul. Now he's doing it for Abner. And as David weeps, all the people, it says in verse 34, wept over him even more. What is David doing here? By repudiating vengeance, he is showing that I trust in the Lord to establish me as king. And because he trusts in the Lord, the Lord is causing David to grow stronger and stronger through it all. When the people see how their king responds, their confidence in his kingship grows all the more. Even though the, mess, the kingdom is full of a mess, the people are confident in the goodness of their king. Look at verse 36. As the people watched David weeping and lamenting, all the people took note of this, and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. On that day, all the troops and all Israel were convinced that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. So how did David grow stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker? Not by any power play, but by seeking the Lord and showing his mercy. Not because David was without faults or follies, but by the grace of God. And not through acts of violence or vengeance. I don't know all the ways we might be tempted toward vengefulness today. My guess is that most of us are convinced that acts of violence are out of bounds. I don't think any of you is going to go out on the Fox River Trail with a spear in your hand. I don't think anyone is going to physically assault people or vandalize their property. We are respectable citizens of the Fox Valley. We don't do stuff like that. We know how to keep peace with our neighbors. But that doesn't mean we're immune to vengeance in our hearts. We just know how to keep it within socially respectable boundaries, right? So where do you see seeds of vengefulness in your own heart? There's an old German word. We don't have one quite like it in English, but it's kind of coming into our own language. It's called schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. It's the combination of two words, schaden, which means harm, and freude, which means joy. Schadenfreude is the experience of deriving pleasure or joy from someone else's suffering or misfortune. Have you ever detected schadenfreude in your heart? Ask yourself, is there someone I really, really dislike to the extent that I find pleasure in their failings? 
When people I don't agree with stumble or fall or fail, am I ever tempted to celebrate their suffering? Do I feel jealous when someone is blessed and happy when they're hurting? Is it difficult for me to pray that God would be gracious and kind toward anyone in my life? Don't get me wrong. If you've ever suffered because of someone else's sin or cruelty, you know what it's like to long for justice. And I want you to know the longing for justice is a good thing. It is right for us to feel relieved. It is right for us to feel grateful, even happy when someone who has done something hurtful or unethical or unjust is finally held accountable for their wrongdoing. Because accountability for the wrongdoer can mean healing for those who've suffered from the abuse, from the wrong. But we always need to remember it's not in our hands to carry out vengeance on those who do wrong. Justice will be satisfied, but it can only be satisfied in the end by a God who knows how to right all these wrongs and who will come and who will judge. Trying to, trying to quench your thirst for justice, which is a good thirst, trying to quench that thirst by acts of vengefulness, it's like drinking salt water. It's only going to leave you more thirsty. In the end, King David understood this. He understood vengeance belongs only to the Lord, and he was willing to wait for God's judgment, and that was the key to why he grew stronger and stronger, even while everything around him was falling apart. David shows us his own heart in the last verse of chapter 3. He says, as for me, even though I am the anointed king, I have little power today. Or the ESV puts it like this. I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are too fierce for me. They're more severe than I. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. That's David's strength. Though anointed king, I am gentle. Though all authority and power is given unto me, I'm not going to use that authority, that power to crush my enemies. Instead, I'm going to be kind and merciful and forgiving. Do you know a king like that? Can you trust him with the things in your life that have hurt you, with the people who've mistreated you, with the disappointments that have left you feeling unfulfilled, with the injustice that has harmed you? Because you have a king in Jesus who is strong and kind. So instead of taking matters into your own hands, you can give all your desires, all your ambitions to him and take his yoke upon you and learn from him for he is gentle and lowly of heart. And instead of thirsting for vengeance, you can rest in his ability to bring perfect justice in the end. Let's turn to him now in prayer. Lord Jesus,